This message is brought to you by Mill City Church in Lowell, Massachusetts. For more information, please visit millcitychurch.net. Are we ready to study God's Word this morning? Turn to 1 Peter chapter 3. 1 Peter chapter 3. As I shared with you last week, uh, these, these couple of weeks here at the end of May, what I'm seeking to do is to uh, go to a couple of places in Scripture and, and really just thinking through our study in Ecclesiastes and then asking some follow-up questions from there. And you remember, and we're, we're coming to the end today, we will start our, our new study for the summer next Sunday. Um, but as we have said so many times, for those of you who have been here, this is such review and you're thinking, man, one more Sunday, right? For those of you who are new, just so that you understand where we've come from, we studied the book of Ecclesiastes this spring, and the whole basis of Ecclesiastes is if this world is all there is, then it's simply meaningless. Everything is meaningless if this world is all there is apart from God. But the writer of Ecclesiastes points our attention to God. And tells us that this is not all there is. That there is a God and we are responsible to Him. And as a result of that also, He gives life, breath, and meaning to everything that we see and experience here uh, under heaven. And so, since this world is not all there is, it's not meaningless. Because God gives it meaning. Last week, we went a little bit deeper into this, and we went to the book of 1 Peter, and we looked at 1 Peter chapter 2 to look at, well, what is work? How about work? So I spend so much time at my job, and so how about work in a meaningless world? How do I work in such a way? How do I do my job in such a way, relate to my employer in such a way that proves that I belong to God and I don't belong to the world. Well, today what I want to do is we're going to also look at 1 Peter. We're going to be in 1 Peter chapter 3 and look at life. So what, what is just a general life that looks, that a life that looks like we belong to God and not like the world? And so if last week was um, work in a meaningless world, let's this, this week look at life in a meaningless world. You know, this past week, um, a new Pirates of the Caribbean movie came out. I think it's number 24 or something like that. Um, but it was released. And I remember the very first Pirates of the Caribbean. There, there is a moment in that movie that I believe has uh, such spiritual overtones for us to think about as Christians. But if you've seen the movie, uh, when you, as you make your way through the movie, you find out that the, the true Pirates, under the light of the moon... Their true identity is discovered because under the light of the moon, those uh, ghostly pirates morph into skeletons and it is proved who they really are. And, and, you know, all throughout the movie, we don't know about this shady character, Jack Sparrow. Like, we don't know what to make of him, right? But after you've seen the first 23 movies, we kind of know a little bit more of his personality and who he is. But we don't know if he's a good guy or a bad guy. We don't know if he's dead or if he's alive. We don't know if he's a real pirate or just a showboat. But at the very end of the movie, in that epic fight scene, Jack comes under the light of the moon. And his true identity is revealed. Because Jack Sparrow also turns into a skeleton. And we find out that Jack is a true pirate all along the way. And then, of course, the movies take off from there. And you can go see number 24 um, this week. But, but 
there is such a spiritual overtone to that. Because when any man, woman, or child comes under the light of Jesus Christ, our true identity is discovered. And the world may see you as an accountant. The world may see you as an engineer or a student or a homemaker. But when put under the light of Jesus Christ, when you've repented of sins and you place faith in Him and you are born again, as the Bible talks about, He now defines your identity. He now defines who you truly are. And now, under the light of Christ, under the identity of God, now your true identity, your true disposition is displayed to the watching world. And so this morning as we look at 1 Peter 3, you see, the reason why I've gone to 1 Peter after the book of Ecclesiastes is because Peter was also writing to a group of Christians who were really wondering what life was all about. And he's going to call those Christians sojourners. He's going to call them exiles. He's going to call them aliens because they felt so out of place in this sinful world. And he's writing to remind them who they are in Jesus. And he spends chapters 1 and 2 reminding them of their identity through the gospel. And then once he gets to halfway through chapter 2 and chapter 3 and chapter 4, he's going to start talking very specifically, practically, concrete what this new identity in Jesus actually manifests itself as in life. And so this morning, we're going to See who we are under the light of Jesus. As our new identities are exposed. And what does a life look like in a meaningless world of showing the world that we ultimately belong to Jesus? What are some attitudes? What are some dispositions? What are some actions that we do, that we live by, that will prove to the world that we are not of this world, but of a, but of a different world in Jesus. And so that's what we're going to see this morning. It's a very short passage. We're going to pick up in chapter 3. We're going to look at verses 8 through 12. And Peter writes this, finally, all of you have unity of mind, sympathy, brotherly love, a tender heart, and a humble mind. Do not repay evil for evil or reviling for reviling, but on the contrary, bless. For to this you were called that you may obtain a blessing. For whoever desires to love life and see good days, let him keep his tongue from evil and his lips from speaking deceit. Let him turn away from evil and do good. Let him seek peace and pursue it. For the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous and his ears are open to their prayer. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. This is a great passage. It's a, it's a great passage. It's a practical passage. And, and it's very concrete in what it looks like for a life to mirror God here in what, a, what seems to be a meaningless world. But then God gives meaning to our lives. So if you'll pull out your notes from your worship guide today and follow along, that'll keep us all on the same page. We're going to ask the question, how do Christians live in a way that proves that we belong to God in a world that obviously does not live that way. And so the first thing that I see that Peter calls us to here is that we're called to display a different disposition. We're called to display in our lives a different disposition. In verse 8, he's going to give uh, several qualities here. Several commands are actually participles, meaning that they're supposed to be ongoing actions in our lives. It's supposed to just simply be the dispositions that characterize 
our lives. This isn't a one-time thing. It's supposed to be ongoing. For the rest of our lives, we're to live this way that verse 8 talks about. And if you read through the text, you start reading things like having unity of mind or sympathy or brotherly love, a tender heart, a humble mind, not repaying evil for evil, not paying reviling for reviling. You start figuring out that this isn't normal. I mean, the positive ways we're supposed to live here, we're going to look at in verse 8, but then also the negative things that we're, not, that we're supposed to avoid, this isn't normative. This isn't normative natural behavior for a boy or girl, man or woman living on planet earth. So what you're going to see is that the Bible is actually calling you to be weird. And so when Peter calls you sojourners and exiles, aliens in this world, he means what he says. The Bible actually calls us to be oddballs in this world because the things that are natural to us, the Bible is going to call us away from that. And the things that are very counterintuitive for us to live by that, we're, that we don't naturally live by, it's going to call us to live that way. So here's what you need to know today. There is a general and acceptable demeanor of American society. Maybe it should simply be a good person. And some of this isn't all bad. But then some of the ways in which we live on planet Earth are not so good. But what the Bible is going to show us is there is a normative pattern for followers of Jesus. Those who have experienced the new birth. And it's actually the verifying proof that we've experienced the new birth. So let's look at some of these personifying traits. Verse 8 tells us about. Number one, Peter's going to tell us to be harmonious. Be harmonious or have unity of mind. The, act, the term actually means same think. We don't talk like that, but it's good theology. Same think. Now, we know that the New Testament speaks of unity in the church throughout the New Testament. From Jesus to Paul to John and Peter, the call is for Christians to live in a united way or a harmonious way. So it's important that we understand exactly what it means to live that way. Now, it doesn't mean that Christians are going to always agree on everything. At its core, it seems that the New Testament even assumes that we may not agree on everything. Uh, let me illustrate it this way. The term harmony is actually a musical term. And so as someone who has an undergrad degree in music and is a congregation who has heard a very, very good musically put together worship team this morning, let me explain it a little bit further. Harmony is experienced when a group of people sing or play different parts while singing or playing in the same key signature. They sing in the same key, but they may not sing the same notes. They might sing different notes. They may, they may be simple thirds above or simple thirds below that simply harmonize with one another. And the more parts you add, and then you throw in some, some jazz licks here and there, the more intricacy, intricate and, the, and more complex the chord structure becomes... And the more crazy the harmonies are that you produce. And so as a music nerd, I dig that. that that's why I love listening to a cappella harmonic groups. Because the intricacies and the brilliance of that, just it's just great for me. Now this can be a helpful picture when thinking about living harmoniously as the church. 
We might disagree on minor issues of doctrine or maybe even ministry strategies and ideas. And each of us is gifted in our own unique way in the body of Christ or the ultimate choir called the church of Jesus Christ. And as children of God who have experienced new life in Jesus, we're all singing the ultimate song of gospel truth, Jesus Christ. We are ultimately united around His truth. Our challenge is this is to sing in a way and harmonize a way in life that is in accord with His song. You are to carry yourself in a way. You are to speak in a way. You are to behave in a way. Treat your brothers and sisters in Christ in a way that harmonizes so that we collectively would be this great big choir and show the world that we belong to someone more ultimate than ourselves. Each of us is to think and act in a way that promotes harmony in God's grand orchestra rather than discord or strife or just blowing the wrong note. So first of all, he's going to say be harmonious. He's going to say be sympathetic. He says have sympathy. This is more than a Hallmark card. The term means to share the same feeling. The challenge here is for God's people to live and act in a way where we would put ourselves into the emotional shoes of someone else. It's what Paul would mean in 1 Corinthians 10, 26 when when he tells the Corinthian church, if one member suffers, all suffer together. And if one member is honored then all rejoice together. You don't need me to say that this is not normative behavior for mankind. This isn't normative for us as human beings, as citizens of this world. We live in a world that is governed by self-preservation and self-fulfillment. We take care of our own. But the scriptures are challenging us to sympathize deeply with our neighbors, especially our Christian brothers and sisters, And so that when one of us gets a job promotion, rather than being envious of that brother, we should rejoice with that brother. And when a a sister in Christ here gets gets a new car or a family gets a new house and there's a victory in their life, rather than envying that or rather than just simply being jealous, we should rejoice with them. And when someone experiences great loss, whether it's unemployment or the loss of a loved one or just simply is going through a depressing state, rather than simply saying it stinks to be you, we should get into the mud with them and we should weep with them. We should cry with them. We should pray with them. The scriptures here is to sympathize and empathize with one another, getting in each other's shoes and And rejoicing when we're rejoicing and and weeping when we're weeping. And when you do this, you will most assuredly demonstrate that you belong to God. Thirdly, he's going to say be brotherly. These two are kind of put together here. He says have brotherly love. Now, in the scriptures, now if you've been here at Mill City for a long time, you've heard us talk about this before. But in the scriptures, there is a general love that we are to have for all mankind. We, we are to look out for our neighbor and to simply love our neighbor as ourselves. Jesus tells us this also in Matthew 22. But when you read the New Testament epistles, it goes deeper than that. 
Deeper than a general love for mankind that we're to have for everybody, there is a special love for the brethren or the brothers and sisters in Christ. In other words, your brothers and sisters in Christ, fellow Christians, especially in your local church where you serve here, there is a special love that we are to have, a familial love, a familial bond that we are to have for one another. And this is all throughout the New Testament. Let me give you just a taste of it. In John 13, Jesus says this, a new commandment I give to you, that you love one another. Just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. By this, all people will know that you're my disciples if you have love for one another. Jesus tells us here that the most relevant thing that the watching world can look at the church, the most relevant piece of information that we can display is love for each other. Familial bonds. It's not smoke machines and special effect lighting. It's not a real hip website. It's not a great presence on social media. Those are not the most relevant things, the most relevant tools we hold in our hands for a watching world. Jesus says it's love for each other. It is sacrificial, deferential love for fellow members of the body of Christ that's gonna show the world that we ultimately belong to him and not the world. You go on, you see in Romans 12, verse 10, love one another with brotherly affection. The same term that Peter uses here, brotherly love, in 1 Peter chapter three. 1 Thessalonians four, verses nine and 10, Paul says this, now concerning brotherly love, you have no need for anyone to write to you, for you yourselves have been taught by God to love one another, for that is indeed what you're doing to all the brothers. You would think he would just stop there and say, great you're doing this but he says but we urge you brothers to do this more and more and then the writer of hebrews in 13 1 says let brotherly love continue peter says it here to have brotherly love why the constant reminders why the broken record i mean love each other like brothers i get the point that's easy right wrong (laughs) it's not easy It's counterintuitive. It's radical, even. It's not easy for at least two reasons. One, we don't naturally think like this. We categorize family, friends, and acquaintances. And it's tempting for us to simply view our church as a group of Christian acquaintances. But Peter says we're not Christian acquaintances. Peter, John, Paul, Jesus, they all tell us that we are family. We're not even close Christian friends. We are brothers and we're sisters. We don't naturally look at each other in the body of Christ and say family. That's one reason why it's not easy. Another reason it's not easy to love each other as brothers and sisters is because we're sinners who need to be loved like family. Each of us is a sinner in this room. I'm not sure if you need to be reminded of that today, but I'm going to remind you that today. Each of us is a sinner And we need to be loved like family. Here's what I mean. We are complicated, messy people. I am. And so are you. We are complicated, messy people who need to be loved by complicated, messy people. It's like the Peanuts cartoon strip that shows Lucy and Snoopy. We remember Lucy and Snoopy, right? Lucy tells Snoopy, there are times you really bug me, but I must admit there are other times I really like to hug you. 
And then there's a balloon above Snoopy that says, I guess that's just the way I am. Huggable and buggable. Christians, that's the reality of your spiritual family. There are going to be some days you look at each other and you say, that guy, that girl is really huggable. There are other days you say, man, they are really buggable. The reality is you're going to make each other mad. You're going to disagree. You're going to bicker. You're going to be tempted to kick each other to the curb. You're going to be tempted to bolt when something doesn't go your way or when someone offends you or hurts you. You're going to be tempted to run away. But family doesn't do that, do they? By and large, we generally don't do that to family. And so Peter's point is with God's children in his church, we don't do it that way either. Mill City Church family, do you want to show a watching world what it means to belong to God today? Then grow in brotherly affection. Grow in your love for the brothers and sisters in this body. Keep sacrificing for one another. Keep growing in affection for one another. Keep inviting each other into your homes. Keep on bearing with one another in brotherly love. Next, he says, be compassionate. Be compassionate. The ESV translated as having a tender heart in verse 8. It actually relates to one's internal organs. Or more literally, in the first century Greco-Roman world, the bowels. <laughs> Said a good picture before lunch. Now when you and I want to express our affection, our deepest affections to someone, whether it be our wife, our husband, our son, our daughter, our brother, sister, mom, or dad, our friend, we normally say, I love you from the bottom of my heart. But in the ancient world, intense emotion was expressed from the depth of their bowels. Now think about how this would change your Mother's Day cards, right? (laughs) Mom, I love you this morning with all of my large intestines. It doesn't exactly translate, does it? How would this translate our our great uh, love songs, country or pop, right? Don't break my bowels, my achy, breaky bowels. It just doesn't translate in the 21st century. Or honey, I want you to know that I love you from the bottom of my colon. I love you, baby. But in the first century Greco-Roman world, this is the way it was expressed. The point is this. That our affections and our sympathy towards others should be deep-seated and heartfelt. Peter's calling us to something beyond surface level. He's calling us beyond mere trivialities. He's saying to unite at the depth of who you are with others. And those affections should mirror their passionate affections that God, through His Son Jesus, expressed towards sinners like me and like you. So be sympathetic. Be brotherly in your love for one another, but also be compassionate. This will demonstrate a different disposition proving that you belong to God. Lastly here, he says, be humble. Be humble. It's a close cousin to the first, harmony. You see, how much our corporate harmony would grow corporately if individually our humility would grow. Humility stands as one of the most central, if not the quintessential character trait in God's economy. Both in the Old and New Testaments, they clearly enunciated as such. Isaiah 66, verse 2, 
This is God speaking. This is the one to whom I will look. Do you want God to look on you favorably today? This is the one to whom I will look. He who is humble and contrite in spirit and trembles at my word. You do that, the scriptures say that you have God's gaze on you. James 4, 6 echoes the Old Testament. God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. So true humility expresses itself in right relationship towards both God and right relationship towards men. C.J. Mahaney wrote what is one of the most formative books in my life. He wrote it about 10 or 12 years ago called Humility, True Greatness. I would most definitely commend it to you to read. It's a short little read, but it is a very transformative read. There are principles in my life today that I do almost on a daily basis that I pulled from that book. Uh, We may even have some copies on our resource shelf in our library today. Uh, You could check that out. But in his book entitled Humility, True Greatness, he says this, Contrary to popular belief, it's not those who help themselves whom God helps. It's those who humble themselves. And then he goes on to define humility. He says, Humility is honestly assessing ourselves in light of God's holiness and our sinfulness. And Mahaney's point is that when we see the greatness of God and we see the, the sinfulness of ourselves, how can we be anything less than humble? When we see the greatness of our God and we see the insignificant of ourselves, we we pale in comparison. How can we not just bow prostrate at His feet? You see, my prayer is that you would be people who are humbled by the holiness of our great God. I pray that you would be a people who walk in humility before one another. I pray that we will be a church who gives each other the benefit of the doubt before jumping to conclusions. That we would ask each other questions before ascribing accusations, that we would not presume that we know better than God, nor that we would just presume that we know better than others, but we would humble ourselves, that we'd be a people who look out for the benefit of others first, as well as looking out for the benefit of ourselves. I pray that we would be a church personified by humility, harmony, extending sympathy and compassion and brotherly love, Ultimately, that we would display a different disposition to a watching world and that by doing so, we would demonstrate to that watching world that we ultimately don't belong to this world, but we belong to God. So the first thing that we see there in verse 8 is we are called to have a different disposition. And secondly, we are called to give a different response So when you have all of these traits working inside of you, you have all these fruits working inside of you by the power of the Holy Spirit, that's going to lead you to respond to things and respond to circumstances and respond to people differently. He's going to say that we're to have a different response. Look at what verse 9 says. Do not repay evil for evil or reviling for reviling, but on the contrary, bless. For to this you were called that you may obtain a blessing. Verse 9 says, do not repay evil for evil or reviling for reviling. You go on in verses 10 and 11, say, keep your tongue from evil and your lips from speaking deceit. Turn away from evil and do good. Seek peace and pursue it. Who in this room does this naturally? Please don't raise your hand. It's better for people to presume you're a liar than for you to prove it to them. 
None of us naturally responds that way. You see, this different disposition that God is doing inside of us is then going to empower us to respond very differently than the watching world would respond. Now, I would probably say that this is even more radical than the traits that he just said that we should grow in. And in giving us this picture, he's going, to te- he's going to give us two truths here. First, we do not seek to retaliate. We do not seek to retaliate. Is that not what he says in verse 9? Everything inside of you, everything inside the human nature says, get revenge. Everything inside of you says, make them pay. This is what they did to me. So I am in my right to do it back to them. Is this not the way the world operates? You you don't need me to convince you of that. This is natural for us. There's nothing radical about that. As a matter of fact, it, it actually appeals to our sense of human fairness and justice. But God is actually commanding us not to retaliate. God says, I'm going to take your human logic and I'm going to turn it upside down. You don't retaliate. You don't repay evil with evil. And it's not just here in Peter that he says this. In Romans chapter 12, verse 17, Paul says, Repay no one evil for evil, but give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all. Paul says in 1 Thessalonians 5, 15, See that no one repays anyone evil for evil, but always seek to do good to one another and to everyone. Do you see a pattern? This isn't just simply an obscure text of Scripture that we say, man, maybe they were just feeling extra generous that day, and so that's why they wrote that. Instead, it's a pattern throughout the New Testament. So you are challenged to not do what is natural. Instead, you're given an alternative. We do not seek to retaliate. Instead, we do seek to bless. We seek to bless. If this is not natural, then where did Peter and Paul and the rest of the apostles get this stuff from? Did they just make this stuff up? On the contrary. If you go to Matthew chapter 5, we're going to find out that they got it straight from the Savior's mouth Himself, straight from the Messiah. In Matthew chapter 5, in the Sermon on the Mount... We see that Jesus, in fact, turns our logic upside down. Because in verse 38 of chapter 5 of Matthew, he says this, You've heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I say to you, do not resist the one who is evil. But if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. And if anyone would sue you and take your tunic, let him have your cloak as well. And if anyone forces you to go one mile, go with him two miles. Give to the one who begs from you and do not refuse the one who would borrow from you. This is radical stuff, no? But this is straight from Jesus. He turns our senses of justice upside down. He turns our logic against us and gives us a different way. Don't retaliate. Bless. Anyone out there can retaliate. Anyone out there will retaliate. But blessing, blessing others proves that you belong to me and not to the world. 
I read a story recently of a prominent man in the media who, when reviled by others in the media, chooses to bless rather than retaliate. And it's said that for those who revile him, he sends them a necktie in the mail. Not with which to hang themselves, but by which to bless them. Blessing proves that you belong to God. I don't want to minimize for a moment the pain and the hurt that other people cause you. We looked at this last week when we talked about some of the struggles on the job site. Don't want for a moment to minimize that. Hurt is real. And you can hurt. You can go through pain. You can be offended. You can be ridiculed. And it hurt and cause you pain and still bless. Blessing is a choice. And Peter says that the ability to do that proves that you belong to Jesus and not to the world. Because if you didn't, you would just retaliate left and right just like the rest of the world does. So we are called to seek a different disposition. We are called to seek a different response. Lastly, we're going to see here that we are called to seek a different motivation. We're called to seek a different motivation Verse 10 says, whoever desires to love life and see good days. Is that your desire? No, Pastor Chris, I just desire to be miserable and hateful for the rest of my life. Then I would love to have a conversation with you afterwards today. No, I mean, most of us would say, of course, I desire to love life. I desire to see good days. I would venture to say that most people you encounter in this world would agree with that. Most people living in the United States of America would say, I want to love life and to see good days. And morally speaking, as a society, we say all the time, I want to be a good person, right? Or I want to set out to be a better person. It's one of the things that New Year's resolutions are all about in January. So both non-Christian and Christian alike would say, I want to be a good person. I want to be a better person. We have to ask ourselves a question, though. If that's pretty much everyone's goal around us, then what separates the Christ follower from the non-Christ follower? Because as a society, we would affirm goodness. We would affirm morality. So what's the difference? I would argue it's motivation. You see, the non-believer's motivation is that simply by doing good things or being a moral person, that this is an end in and of itself. That simply doing good things is the whole goal of life, and then when I get to the end, my good is going to outweigh my bad, and that's going to be my righteousness before God Almighty. But as we've seen so many times before in this church and teaching the scriptures that God is going to reject that righteousness because he's going to tell us we don't have a righteousness on our own. So it's all about motivation. And Peter's telling us here that there's a different motivating uh, passion behind the Christ follower for pursuing these good days and desiring this love of life. And, and here it is. It's, it, it is insinuate it's inferred in the text he says but on the contrary bless for to this 
you were called. Who does the calling? It's okay to answer. Who does the calling to us? God. Okay, so the motivation has got to come from God. The motivation has got to be God. You see, these things that we're called to do here, we are called by God to do them. Your ultimate motivation is not to simply be a better person. Your ultimate motivation can't just simply to be a good model citizen. Your motivation can't just simply to be to, to stay out of jail for the rest of your life. Your motivation must start with God. My motivation begins with Him. My motivation begins by saying, I can't do any of this on my own. My motivation begins by saying, I need a Savior outside of myself to make me in this kind of person that He's calling me to be. He calls you to do it, and He's going to empower you to do it. Now, here's some reasons. So we're called to seek a different motivation. Here's the why. Because right living, these good deeds, this different disposition, guarantees our present blessings. You will see this in the text in verse 9. For to this you were called. What were you called? Well, all of these different traits we talked about in verse 8. And not retaliating that we talked about in verse 9. But instead, blessing all of this you were called that you may obtain a blessing. Could it be that there are Christ followers in this room who are not living as fruitful a life or as blessed of a life and you're not experiencing the blessing of God in your life because you're living in a way contrary to the new birth? What Peter is telling us here is that by displaying these traits, displaying this disposition, blessing others instead of cursing others, that that type of living is simply going to incur blessing. You are going to be blessed in life if you live like Jesus and display to a watching world that you belong to Him and not the world. So right living guarantees our present blessings. It's what verse 9 says. But, but also because living rightly guarantees our Lord's favor. And I have to be honest with you. I don't think about this as often as I should. I guess you probably don't either. But having God's favor would probably be the best blessing of all. I mean, don't you want God's favor in your life? Don't you want God's favor in your life? If you look down in verse 12, as he sums this paragraph up, for the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous, and his ears are open to their prayer. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. I don't know about you this morning, but I don't want the face of the Lord to be against me. But I do want his eyes on me. And I do want his ears open to my prayers. And I can't describe, I can't explain all of this in God's spiritual physic. I can't. But I can't get away from the text here that in this text, Peter seems to be telling us that there is a correlation 
between God's favor on our lives, His eyes on our lives, His ears open to our prayers, there is a correlation to those blessings and the extent to which we are displaying this new disposition that He has called us to display. Ultimately, what I believe that Peter is showing us here is that our lives, our dispositions, our responses and our reactions all matter. They matter. And I believe ultimately why they matter is because they show the transformation of Jesus in our lives. There are often times where Christians will look at other Christians and they'll say, I don't understand. Like this, This man or this woman professes faith in Jesus. They've been in the church for 10 years, 20 years. But their lives don't look really any more different today than they did 10 years or 20 years ago. And what we as a collective church often does is we try to rationalize, say, oh, they're just kind of backslidden or, oh, she's had some really tough times in her life or, you know, you don't know the struggles that he goes through. And what we do is we try to reason people into the kingdom. We try to rationalize people into the kingdom. But it seems to me that if you look at what Peter is getting at here and defining what a life in Jesus looks like, is that if we're looking at someone whose life doesn't look any different today than it did five years ago or ten years ago, that's not to say that we personify these things perfectly. Of course we don't. But if we're looking at a life that doesn't look any differently today than it did five years ago, ten years ago, or twenty years ago, might we need to come to the conclusion that they never truly were born again? Might we need to come to the conclusion that Jesus hasn't transformed their life? Because the life that Jesus saves, Jesus will also transform that life and produce fruit like this. We would be wise today to ask ourselves the question, Lord, am I showing a watching world that I belong to you and not to the world? Lord, has there been gospel transformation in my life? It might be a good practice for you today to look at a brother or sister and say, would you tell me honestly today, based on what you see in my life, do I display some of this reality? Am I proving to an outside world and showing that Christ is alive and well in me? It would be great for us just to be affirmed in that today. I could go down the list and roster in here and look at so many of your lives and say, boy, I see Jesus in you because of this, 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 this. We need to be reminded of that. We need to be affirmed in that. But the converse is also true. If there are those of us who are not displaying the realities of the new birth, we need to hear that too. Because eternity is literally in the balance. So this morning... As we come to a close, my my first exhortation would be to the believer in this room. Look at that list today. Look at those traits. Look at those qualities. Look at that disposition God's calling you to. Look at those responses that God is calling you away from and those He's calling you towards. Today would be a good day to simply respond and say, Father, would you grow me in this area and this area because I see that I'm strong here but I'm really weak here and I want to display to a watching world that I belong to you through that and also to those who are not a believer in Jesus today 
Following Jesus is so much more than what we've looked at today. But it's certainly not less. And so this is a good starting point for you to see today what it actually means, at least in a, in a partial way, of what it means to be a believer in Jesus. If you want this for your life, you can have this for your life by simply repenting of your sins and agreeing with God that you're a sinner. And then placing faith in his son Jesus who lived that perfect life you were supposed to live and died the punishing death you were required to die. And you can do that today through simple prayer. And then I would encourage you to take the hand of a friend, a brother, a sister, an elder, a leader, and tell them what God is doing in your life. Ultimately, here's our prayer this morning. Is that Father that you would look on all of us with your favor and your care so that we may be blessed and so that we may be a blessing. And that's going to show the world that we belong to God. Father, we come to you today and we thank you in the name of Jesus that you not only save us but you also sanctify us and progressively make us look more and more like yourself. And so we pray today that today would have been an exercise towards that end, that we would be more sympathetic and more loving towards our brothers and sisters in Christ and that we would be more harmonious and that we would be more humble, that we would not repay evil for evil, that we would not retaliate, but that we would bless, and that all of our motivation would be because of the gospel of Jesus Christ inside of us. And we pray that all of that would happen, not just simply so that we would be better people, but so that we would show the world that you are making us better people. We pray that ultimately our sanctification and our holiness would be more about you than it is ourselves. That it would be about showing the world what God can do in lives through the power of Jesus Christ. And I pray that we would do that individually, but I also pray that we would do that corporately. That we would be a powerful personal witness for Jesus, but we would also be a powerful corporate collective witness for Jesus. And we pray that you would use us to preach the gospel of Jesus through our lives and through our words to this watching world. And we pray all these things because of your son, Jesus. Amen.